Welcome back to What It Takes. The United States ended its involvement in the Vietnam War 50 years ago today, January 27, 1973. That's the day the United States signed the Paris Peace Accords, officially called the Agreement on Ending the War and Restoring Peace in Vietnam. The treaty called for the withdrawal of all U.S. forces still in South Vietnam within 60 days and the release of all U.S. prisoners of war. That wasn't the end of the war, though, for the Vietnamese. The North and South violated the agreement and went on fighting until the Communist North won the war two years later. The U.S. may have gotten out of the war, but reverberations from its disastrous engagement and its military failures continue to this day. The negotiations that ended in the 1973 Paris Peace Accords took five years and were hostile throughout, to say the least. Henry Kissinger was the chief negotiator for the U.S. and Le Duc Tho for North Vietnam. The two men were jointly awarded the 1973 Nobel Peace Prize, but Le Duc Tho refused to accept the award, and Henry Kissinger did not attend the award ceremony. Today, to mark the occasion of the Paris Peace Accords, we're bringing back our episode on two of the most renowned chroniclers of the history of the war in Vietnam, Neil Sheehan and David Halberstam. The episode originally aired two years ago. Hi again, it's Alice, and this is journalist Neil Sheehan. We have a unique law in this country called the First Amendment, the Constitution. I have always believed that that places a duty on the American journalist to seek out important truths and to get those truths to the public. Now, what's important varies according to the time. But you've got to think of yourself as an You're not an ally of government. Journalists don't have any friends in government. You're not a propagandist. You're not an advocate. You're a witness, and you've got to find out the truth of of a given situation and then get that truth into print. Neil Sheehan is the journalist who brought the Pentagon Papers to light, the secret documents that revealed how three American presidents had deeply deceived the public about the reasons and the scope of the Vietnam War. Sheehan died less than two weeks ago at the age of 84, so on this episode we honor his life and his work by bringing you this interview from the Academy of Achievements archive. We've also got excerpts from an interview with one of his closest colleagues and friends in Vietnam, the iconic war correspondent and historian, David Halberstam. These two extraordinary journalists wrote what are still considered the two signature books about the Vietnam War, A Bright Shining Lie by Mr. Sheehan and The Best and the Brightest by Mr. Halberstam. Since we're releasing this episode on Martin Luther King Day, though, we'd like to begin with an excerpt from Dr. King's searing analytic speech that he called Beyond Vietnam. He delivered it in April of 1967 as the war was reaching a fever pitch. It became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. 
It was sending their sons and their brothers and their husbands to fight and to die in extraordinarily high proportions relative to the rest of the population. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland. And so we have been repeatedly faced with the cruel irony of watching Negro and white boys on TV screens as they kill and die together for a nation that has been unable to seat them together in the same schools. And so we watch them in brutal solidarity, burning the huts of a poor village. But we realize that they would hardly live on the same block in Chicago. I could not be silent in the face of such cruel manipulation of the poor. 1967, the year Dr. King delivered this speech, was the same year that New York Times correspondent Neil Sheehan turned completely against the war. We'll hear that story and many more on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Academy, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. 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 My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. His full name was Cornelius Mahoney Sheehan, and he grew up on a farm in Massachusetts. By the time Neil Sheehan was 11, he was working full-time at the dairy when he wasn't at school. He got paid a little and saved his money for drum lessons. His dream was to become a jazz drummer like his hero, Gene Krupa. But his wrists, he said, weren't fast enough. So how exactly did Neil Sheehan go from small-town farmer to renowned journalist and truth-teller? That's the story he told to the Academy of Achievement in 2007. His mother, an Irish immigrant, did not want him to end up a farmer, and she encouraged him to apply to boarding school, to move away from the farm and toward higher education. He got in with a scholarship and made damn sure he graduated first in his high school class. That, in his words, was the gate out of the pasture. I went to Harvard thinking and majoring and majored in English, thought I wanted to be an editor in a publishing house. And then I took an exam in a, in a modern English course. I can't remember the course now. And there was a, a three-part question. This is my sophomore year, three-part question. Uh, a, I read the novel of A. I had not read the novel in B, and I had, and I had read the novel in C. I had enough of the new criticism jargon in my head that 
the criticism at that time was called new criticism. Um, so that I was able to fake my way, fake my ignorance of novel B, and I got an A in the course, and I decided this is no good. Uh, this is, I'm not learning anything. I should switch to history. So I got out of Harvard, graduated, and we had military service then. Well, I ended up as a pay clerk in Korea, up by the demilitarized zone, in a miserable place. I mean, it was really miserable. The windows in the old Quonset hut were broken, and, and, and we froze to death in the winter. You'd have to get in your, your sleeping bag to sleep at night. It was horrible. And I heard, I, I got word that they were looking for writers in the division information office 40 miles closer to Seoul. So I went down there, and I took the test. The Army has a test for everything. I took the test for uh, journalism, and I passed it. And this sergeant there who was running it, who knew nothing about how to run an information office, he, he couldn't write a sentence. But he, he knew that you hired a PFC who could, um, offered me a job. And the sergeant I was working for up in this miserable place up by the DMZ let me go. So I went down there, and I ended up running that information office, the division information office. I discovered I really like this. And then they sent me over to, to, they offered me a job to go over into Tokyo to, to put out a weekly, news, we put out a weekly newspaper for the division. And they offered me the job of going to Tokyo. I jumped at the chance. So here I was in Tokyo, working at Stars and Stripes, putting out a weekly newspaper. We, we lived in, we, we worked in civilian clothes except once a month, we had to put a uniform on. We were living in officers' quarters at what later became the Olympic built Village. The Japanese had built it during the occupation. So I went, well, part of my job was to, I want to be a journalist, I want to be a reporter. This is, this is, this is what I want to do. And I, 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 I hadn't known that when I joined the Army. I thought I'd go to work, you know, as for the CIA, study Arabic or something, and go to work for the CIA or some oil company or something like that. But I discovered I, I, journalism was, 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 was really turned me on. And uh, part of my job was to hand out to the real press in Tokyo uh, a news release if something happened in Korea to our division, which was of, of, of newsworthy, of news value. So I got to know the guys in the AP Bureau and the UPI Bureau, which was, UPI then was a very lively wire service. And um, the New York Times guy and the Wall Street Journal guy and the, and the Newsweek guy. And I, when I went into the AP, it was very well staffed. The Associated Press is a, is a, is a Association of Newspapers. It doesn't have to make a profit. Uh, and the UPI, which is a privately owned wire service, was understaffed, critically understaffed. They had nobody in there. I mean, they had one American reporter and one Japanese reporter on duty. Banks of teletype machines going around making a terrific racks, these old World War II things that they'd taken the covers off of. And when I went in there with a the news release, the American guy would say, throw it on the table, kid. I mean, he had no time to talk to me. Um, so I, I thought, well, if I go to the AP, I'll never get anything to do. But if I go down to the UPI and ask them if I can work for nothing to learn the business, maybe they'll, 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 they'll let me do it. So I went down and I, I asked the bureau chief if I could work for nothing. He said, you want to work for nothing, kid? I said, yeah. He said, when do you want to start? Neil Sheehan, of course, was still in the Army, but he finished up at Stars and Stripes at 2 o'clock, so he took a shift at UPI from 3 to 11 p.m., three days a week. 
Tokyo was the filing point for all of Asia, so stories came in by cable in shorthand, and he would help rewrite them into readable English before sending them on by wire to San Francisco via Manila. After just two weeks, they asked him if he would be willing to pull a shift by himself six nights a week for $10 a night. So I called my boss in Korea, a major who was the information officer for the division, and I said, can I do this? He said, yeah, sure, just no bylines. There's no army regulation against it, just no bylines, because you could, you could, one thing, you'd be accused of bringing disgrace on the army if something happened. But otherwise, you know, go ahead. So I worked for them for about five or six months, my last five or six months in the army. And then they offered me a job, and I went to work for them for a very simple reason. The turnover was tremendous. I knew that I'd get out of Tokyo and I'd get a bureau very quickly because people were constantly turning over. A month later, I found a note in my typewriter saying, how's your French? Come and see me in the morning. It was from Hoberg, the boss. And he told me that the guy who had broken me in, who had trained me for the desk, and who'd, been, who'd gone down to Saigon, had just quit. So down I went. I was in Vietnam a month after getting out of the Army. I never got shot at in uniform. I got shot <laughs> after I got out. And that's where it started. That was my first assignment. I spent two years there uh, for the UPI, uh, 62 through 60 to 64, which was the advisory war, the Kennedy War, the helicopters and the military advisors. And that failed, of course. The Viet Cong kept getting stronger and stronger. I went back in 64 and got a job at the New York Times and met my wife, who was a staff writer for The New Yorker. And um, after my six-month probation period on the Times was over, they sent me up to Vietnam for, the third, for our third year in Vietnam. So I spent two years in Vietnam for the UPI and then a year there for the New York Times. And then I came back. Uh, they sent me back to Washington to be a Pentagon correspondent. Uh, I never got away from the war for 10 years. It never occurred to him that Vietnam would become such an enormous part of his life. It was all serendipity, he said. He just wanted to be a journalist. And when he was first sent to Saigon... I was thrilled to go. I mean, to go down to cover a war, wow! I mean, that was to get the big story. And you weren't afraid at first, you know. I later on interviewed somebody for the book I wrote on Vietnam who was alive, barely survived um, the first Chinese assault. He led a ranger company. And his company was the, one of the first units assaulted in 1950 in Korea when the Chinese broke loose in the north. He was badly wounded in his legs, and his men were so loyal to him, they came back up the hill after the Chinese had overrun it and pulled him out of the foxhole and dragged him off the hill. And I asked him, I said, you, were, you, were you afraid? You know, because when he, he got out of West Point and went to Korea as a second lieutenant, and they put him to work organizing this ranger company. He said, no. He said, I wasn't afraid to go. He said, hell, I thought, was, I thought it was like going to a football game. You know, I was just afraid I was going to get there and the game would be over. I'd get there too late. Well, it was that attitude I had going to Vietnam as a young reporter. I mean, I wasn't afraid of going to war. It, I almost got killed six months later in a, in a friend, so-called friendly artillery barrages. Incompetent Vietnamese general shelled his own troops. That put the fear of God into me. From that day forward, I was always afraid when I went out. But you had to go out. You just learned, had to learn to control your fear, that's all. Soldiers, most soldiers who are sane are afraid, but they control, the professionals learn to control their fear, and that's what you had to do, because you had to go out. 
I want to pause here in Neil Sheehan's story to introduce you to David Halberstam. Both men received Pulitzer Prizes for their work on Vietnam. Halberstam in 1964, while he was covering the war, and Sheehan in 1988 for his book, A Bright Shining Lie. Mr. Halberstam also graduated from Harvard, but three years before Mr. Sheehan, and they had very different upbringings. David Halberstam was from New York City, raised in a Jewish family with a mother who was a schoolteacher and a father who was an army surgeon. He caught the journalism bug early. At eight years old, he was printing a family newspaper, writing stories about his dad, who was overseas in World War II, and about going fishing with his brother. As he got older, he started to realize that being a journalist could allow you to be part of history, which it absolutely did, in his case and Neil Sheehan's. Mr. Halberstam died in a car crash in 2007 while researching a book about football. He loved and often covered sports. But the excerpts we're about to play are from an interview he recorded with the Academy of Achievement in 1994. Our interviewer, Gail Eichenthal, asked him what inspired his approach to writing. There's a wonderful book by a writer named Cecil Woodham Smith called The Reason Why. And it's the story of why the Light Brigade charged into the Valley of Death, the Battle of Balaclava. And I mean, you know, every child in America in my generation knew there's not a reason why there's but to do or die into the... Well, it's a great book, and instead of this heroic (laughs) portrait of these poor dear young men charging off into the death, it's a portrait of the utter incompetence of the British military system, Lord Raglan and Lord Cardigan, who uh, sent them into this, into their death. And it's a brilliant book, and it's written as if it's a novel. It was breathtaking. And I thought, God, I'd really like to write a book like that. I'd like to write a nonfiction book that's like a novel. And then Theodore White was writing the making of it. He was doing his early books, including a book called uh, uh, Fire in the Ashes, which was a book on the recreation and the regeneration of Europe after World War II. And then later, uh, there was a book that he did, The Making of the President in 1960, which took an event that we all knew the answer to. Who had won the 1960 presidential election and made it read like a detective novel? I thought, God, I'd like to do that. You have really um, stuck your neck out as a journalist um, very frequently. Um, speaking out against the sort of official institutional way of analyzing news. Uh, Vietnam particularly stands out. Where do those guts come from? Well, I think it's what you're paid to do. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I think we are, as grown men, probably what we were as boys, and it's a product of your home, the product of your value system, being raised up to speak out for what you believe in, to trust in your own instincts, to uh, not to be afraid. Uh, my father had served in both World War One and World War Two, so we grew up thinking we were pretty good Americans. We didn't feel that we were lesser Americans than families who had been here a couple hundred years. And uh, we really, I suppose there's a sort of innocence to, uh, to many children of the immigrant story in the sense that they take they take the Statue of Liberty very seriously. They they take the First Amendment seriously. They believe um, that this stuff is serious. That if you go out there and you 
cover America. The dream is supposed to work. They're, we're not we're not cynics. We're skeptics. And I think that was ingrained in our home and uh, crystallized in my education at Harvard, where I was on the Harvard Crimson, which was a, a very good daily paper and which was very independent of the uh, the Harvard administration. It was fiercely independent. It took no money from Harvard. And there was a, a culture there of, of great social and cultural and political independence. And then I worked in the South for five years, which, and on a very good paper in Nashville, Tennessee, for four years, which during the early days of the civil rights movement was independent and liberal and at tension point with, I think, the community at large, often on racial issues. And it's not about popularity. It's about being true to yourself and remembering, uh, I mean, doing an honest job, going out and working hard. But if you get information that is going to jar the government of the United States and jar the people of the United States, that's what you get paid for. And don't expect to be popular. The better you do the job, the more likely you are to go against conventional wisdom. And that's not good. People don't like to hear bad news. So you're not going to be popular. And I think it's probably in the nature of who I am emotionally. I mean, I'm somewhat, for whatever reasons, growing up in that particular family. Uh, I was the more anti-authoritarian one. I have an intuitive sense. Some people are very hierarchical, and they've been raised up to be hierarchical, and they have an instinct to play to whoever is powerful. I have an instinct for this, almost the same reason to be anti-hierarchical, to listen to the voices of those who are not powerful. It's something I've had since I was a very young person and a young reporter. It's been a considerable asset professionally. It, I think uh, it makes you tougher, it makes you fair. It doesn't mean you don't give the people who are in power their fair hearing, but I think there is an assumption in the society that the people who govern have great, great access to get their side of the story out, and therefore if there's an a contradictory story, you better, you're paid to listen to the alternative information. You not only risk the ire of the government when you write about a story like Vietnam, you risk your life. Well, I thought it was worth it. I think all of us did. I, I don't think you could take on the government of the United States. Uh, first off, you cover the war, you had to go out, and you had to be in the field, and you had to see it. Uh, you could not get the truth in Saigon. You had to go out, and the people in Saigon, by and large, were part of the high American hierarchy, and they told you exactly what their superior wanted. What we created, we had a bad policy, as I've just said. So we created a lying machine in which Washington told Saigon what it wanted to hear, and the American generals and ambassadors, hearing that, set up a curve of reporting. Instead of reporting flowing up, this is the truth. We tell the superior and goes works upward to, and then they tell Washington. It was the reverse. The circulatory system was reversed. Washington tells Saigon at the top what it wants to hear. Thereupon, Saigon at this level, going down level by level, tells people what you will report or you will not be promoted. The military has a great deal of power to affect promotion. And I, we would watch this. I mean, we would be with these guys who were captains. And a general would be coming from Washington the next day, and he'd be wanting to inspect and get a progress report. And I'd be with them, and they'd be debating how much truth to tell, because if they told the real truth, they might get in trouble not 
from their immediate superior, but by the, by the person from the Saigon command who came there. So you had this false reporting. You had to go out into the field to get the truth. The people in the field would tell you the truth because they were angry and they were bitter. They were pissed. They were watching their fellow young Americans fight and die in a war where the Vietnamese, cynically or otherwise, were not fighting or were incompetent. So you had to go out there just to get the story. As this tension built and I became the enemy of the government and the, my stories went under more and more criticism from Washington and Saigon, there was an additional moral, ethical burden on me. Um, if I was taking on the government of the United States, the one thing I could not afford, it seemed to me, given the way I had been raised up, was I could not be an armchair person sitting in Saigon doing it theoretically. I had to be out in the field seeing uh, more battles, if possible, than anybody else. It was implicit in my role. I know this is a very complex issue, but for the benefit of our project, what made you doubt? Do you remember when you started realizing in, in Vietnam that the sort of official optimistic view was not the real truth? It didn't work. You could pick it up pretty early. It was, you know, we're talking about risk. It was never great risk uh, to, to be pessimistic. Um, given the way I was raised up, given by the time I got there that I'd been a journalist for six or seven years and I, and I was really a highly professional one, there was no way if you went out into the field and talked to the American officers in the field, you could be anything but pessimistic. And uh, I mean, any number of times I would go out and you'd see the official optimism, these bogus press conferences, and then you'd go out in the field and you'd talk to the division advisors and battalion advisors, and they'd all say, listen, it isn't working. I mean, I remember we went down to, uh, to Mito, which was about 50 miles south of Saigon, 7th Division, 7th Arvin Division area there was a, uh, it was a very active area, and the first helicopters came in, and they were momentarily successful. American support group allowed the Arvins soldiers of the Army of the Republics of South Vietnam or Vietnamese to momentarily inflict um, some uh, defeats upon the VC, and then the VC learned how to deal with the helicopters. They learned how to respond to technology. At first, they'd, been, they'd panicked and run across the field, and they'd been mowed down. And then they learned just to stand and fight, and the helicopter edge went down. I remember going down there, and there was a, a, an assistant division uh, advisor big old country boy from McAllister, Oklahoma. I forget his name for the moment. And my friend Mert Perry and I, he was a stringer for Time Magazine. We're talking about there'd been a number of victories and you'd against the Arvin 314th Battalion. And we'll see, well, you know, they killed 200 and then killed 200 a couple of weeks before that. We said, well, that battalion must be almost gone. I mean, you must almost have a victory here. And he said, no, no, no. They go out and replenish. They go out and recruit, and it's up to full strength again. And that's when you really, that was like, a, that was a great epiphany, that no matter, even when we had victories, which were relatively rare, their political, it was a quick epiphany, their political advantage, their greater capacity to go out and recruit negated our military superiority to the degree that it even existed, which was based upon superior technology. They had political superiority.
party, and they could always go out and recruit. And I, and that's when I think I and others began to see that this was almost a hopeless cause. Thirteen years after David Halberstam gave his answer, the Academy of Achievement posed that very same question to Neil Sheehan. At what point in Vietnam did you sense that things might not be going the way you and the American people were told they were going? Well, initially we had this great conflict with the commanding general and the ambassador because we were losing the war. And they claimed we were winning the war. And when we reporters went out into the field, we saw this army that wouldn't fight, that was led by political, political incompetent officers who were political appointees or who were corrupt. Many of them were corrupt. The Viet Cong were getting stronger all the time. The military advisors in the field were telling us, also confirming what we were seeing, that they were losing, we were losing the war. There was one military advisor in particular, John Paul Vant, who became the main figure of the book I wrote, who was a brilliant soldier. And John was, was brilliant at analyzing what was going on. And we became their conduit. The commanding general wouldn't listen to the reports he was getting. So the reporters were the only ones who were, who were reflecting what the advisors in the field believed. And so we got in this tremendous conflict. And he claimed we were winning the war, and, and these young reporters were inexperienced and emotional, and we were politically suspect, and we ought to be fired. And the, it, the pressure was enormous. But we, we believed in the war. We were not against the war. We were products of the Cold War, all of us. David Halberstam, who I worked with in Vietnam, who was my partner there. Uh, we, we believed it was the right thing to do. We, we believed all that, that, those shibboleths of the Cold War, all of which turned out to be, be you know, they turned out to be uh, mirages. The domino theory that if South Vietnam fell, the rest of South Cambodia, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, it was all, they were all gonna fall one by one. Uh, we believed that the Vietnamese communists were pawns of the Chinese and the Russians. They were taking their orders from Moscow and Pe Pe Beijing. It was rubbish. They were independent people who had their own objectives and, and, and they, were, they were the true nationalists in the country. We didn't know any of this, really. But we did know they were, we were losing the war. That got us in a hell of a battle. Um, and we managed to survive that as reporters. Then I went back to Vietnam in 65 for the Times, second man in the Bureau, with a, with a, with a very experienced reporter named Charles Moore, who resigned from time over in dispute over the war. It was the beginning of the big American war when the Johnson, the Kennedy War of advisors and helicopters and fighter bombers to, to, to support the Saigon troops, the Saigon regime's troops had failed. And the Viet Cong had grown from a band of poorly armed guerrillas into a very powerful striking force, and they were about to take over the country. In six months or so, they would have won a military victory. They would have seized good power. Um, and so Johnson sent in the regular army, the Marine Corps, the regular U.S. Army, the Air Force, the Navy. And uh, I had no, you know, I walked through most of the Mekong Delta in my first two years. I liked the Vietnamese as a people. I had a lot of Vietnamese friends. 
And here came in the regular U.S. Army and the Marine Corps and the, and the Air Force and the Navy, and they proceeded to blow up and burn, start to blow up and burn down this country we're supposed to be saving. I mean, if there was a sniper in a village, they didn't go in and get him. They called for an artillery barrage or an airstrike and blew the whole village away. And General Westmoreland was deliberately bombing and shelling uh, uh, villages in Viet Cong-held areas to drive the population out. He was deliberately doing it. He was killing and maiming tens of thousands of, of, of women and kids. All this began to really turn me off. Uh, and, and, but, you know, the justification was, you know, we've got to, st we've got to put up with this because, uh, because we've got to stop the communists, etc. And everybody still believed that, but it began to really turn me off. And when I came back in 66, I was very disillusioned with what was going on. It was, it, was, it, was, it was really disturbing to me. I still believed we should stick it out because we had to because of the Cold War. But then within one year of being coming Pentagon correspondent now in 66 and reflecting back on it, I realized, first of all, we were not going to win the war in Vietnam. We weren't going to muddle through. The Vietnamese were going to resist us just as long as it took. They were going to sacrifice as many men, many people as long as it took because of their national cause. And number two, it was a mistake. We, did, we had no business being there. These people were not a threat to us. This Cold War chivalrous stuff was nonsense. Because I'd been in Indonesia. When the Indonesian Communist Party pulled a coup in 65 to try to take over, the army massacred them. It was one of the great massacres. Uh, they killed everybody. If you, had a, if, you, if you had a communist uncle, they, they killed the whole family. They killed about 500 to 600,000 people. I mean, this stuff was local. It had nothing to do with any sort of international. I mean, well, the motivations were not international. And the Vietnamese were fighting for the independence of their country. I realized that. So I, I, I by six, but it took me until 67 to really turn against the war. And, and that's, and, and what it was the violence and, and the, 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 that started me thinking. And the corruption that went on, that continued. I mean, the, the corruption became enormous because when the army, American army came in, all this money was flowing in. And here are all these people who were supposedly the president of Vietnam. He was up to his, up to his elbows in graft, you know, how poor are these people going to run a country? So it was, it was a terribly disillusioning experience, but a healthy one. Neil Sheehan called his uh, book, So Long in the Writing, The Bright and Shining Lie. Yeah. What, what was the big lie about Vietnam? Well, I think that the big lie of the war began in Washington, and it began with the... Uh, the fear of McCarthyism, the fear of the Democratic Party that if it, quote, lost, because as it had in, was blamed in China, lost a country to the communists, um, it would be attacked and driven out of power. This is, in other words, there was a historical process, the coming of a modern China that took place in the 40s, the victory of Mao over Chiang Kai-shek. And because the Democrats had been in power for so long, the Republicans, eager for an issue, seized on that, that the Democrats had been soft on communism, used that issue quite unscrupulously in a very ugly way, and it got into the bloodstream. Vietnam is the direct product of that. This, the, the Democratic administration did not care, really, about Vietnam. 
And it, I don't think in its heart of hearts that when it really examined the information, believed this thing could be done. But what it did not want to do was lose Vietnam and therefore be attacked by the Republican center, someone like, of all people, Richard Nixon, who would have attacked them. So they made this commitment. The great big lie was trying to see a war, which was an extension of Vietnamese nationalism, as if it were a Cold War battle. And that didn't work. I mean, we said that. Western forces, pro-Western, pro-democratic forces against communists. But that's not how the Vietnamese people saw it. They saw this as nationalism versus neo-colonialism. And we were, in the words of my friend Bernard Fall, uh, who was killed there, a a great historian of that war, we were walking in the same footsteps of the French, as the French, although dreaming different dreams. Uh, we, we did not think we were fighting a colonial war. But to the Vietnamese, we were white. We were there to stop them from their destiny. The, the American government would never admit that this war was a revolution, and that therefore we were on the wrong side of a revolution. So if you want one big lie, that is the big encompassing lie. And therefore, from the start, the terminology was wrong. Western forces pro-democratic forces, communist reds. Well, they were the heirs of her. They were, Ho Chi Minh was seen by his people as George Washington. When we sent our young men, these wonderfully young men, the 500,000 young men who fought brilliantly, beautifully, and great courage, they were doing it. It was great courage and personal loyalty in a hopeless cause. It's a very sad story. It's a story that David Halberstam told in The Best and the Brightest, which came out in 1972. The book focused on John F. Kennedy's dream team, who, with all their talents and brain power, came up with such a misguided foreign policy, the consequences of which we still live with today. The Boston Globe called the book, and I'm quoting here, The Iliad of the American Empire and the Odyssey of This Nation's Search for its idealistic soul. The best and the brightest is almost like watching an Alfred Hitchcock thriller. The book came out one year after Neil Sheehan cracked open wide the 7,000-page secret history of the war from 1945 to 1967, better known as the Pentagon Papers. They were famously leaked to Mr. Sheehan by one of the paper's authors, Daniel Ellsberg. Ellsberg hoped their explosive contents would bring about an end to the war, which they eventually did. Now that Mr. Sheehan has died, the fuller story of how he got them from Ellsberg has come out. It's a juicy tale that I'll save for the very end. But in 2007, this is what he had to say about it. I got the Pentagon Papers for the New York Times. I, I, brought the, I got them and brought them to the Times. I was very proud of the paper. Because the the executive editor, first of all, I briefed all the editors. Well, I spent two weeks hidden down here in the Jefferson Hotel, which was a dump at the time, with one of the uh, assistant foreign editors. The two of us went through all of this stuff. And I was astonished at that. I mean, at how much they'd been able to, to hide. It was astonishing. Because I knew, obviously, Vietnam. I mean, I'd lived through these events. 
but what was, and also what was astonishing was here were their documents, their telegrams, put, sending the armies in the field, the airplanes in the air, their memoranda. It, it, was, it wasn't some unidentified source in the Pentagon in, in a news story. It was their stuff, the real thing. It was the archive of the war. Johnson telling them to keep this secret, how they bamboozled the country over the Tonkin Gulf Resolution and gotten a blank check declaration of war uh, in 1964, which the president could cash whenever he wanted. Uh, I mean, there it was, in black and white. It was all classified top secret sensitive, unjustly. I mean, they had in their 1945 telegram from Ho Chi Minh appealing to President Truman to help him get rid of the French. They had these classified top secret sensitive. There wasn't anything in there of any real military security value. The most recent material was from 1968. So we spent two weeks reading, and then we went up to New York. And uh, I, I briefed the editors in New York. And I was very proud of the reaction. I, no one in the room said, should we print this stuff? Not, not a single editor at the time, and particularly the executive editor, A.M. Rosenthal, it was called Abe Rosenthal. The only question he asked me was, he called me after I briefed everybody, and the staff counsel, the lawyer for the paper, hadn't heard anything about this. And he was brought into the room too, and he kept saying to me, don't tell them this, he kept whispering in my ear. We may have committed a felony here. Don't tell them this. <laughs> and I said, I got that, I have to tell them, you know. <laughs> it's, their responsibility, they're, 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 they're the editors. I, I held nothing back. Uh, I outlined you know, what we had and, and how explosive it was gonna be, not from a point of view of the national, we were not gonna compromise the national security of the United States, but it was full of political and historical secrets, which were gonna cause an explosion, because that's what politicians care about. They don't care about it. You could print the, you, you, you could print a formula for a nuclear weapon and that won't really excite them. But if you print something that reflects on their reputations and says they've made a mistake, why, that, that, that drives them right through the wall. Um, um, so, but he, he, Abe never said to me, uh, he called me over to his office after the main briefing. He sat me down and he said, now look, how do we know these things weren't made up by a bunch of kids in a cellar? Well, this is the time of the, the hippies and, and the flower children and all the revolution. Uh, how do you know this is authentic? And I said, well, first of all, I know the people who I got this from had access to the real thing. And secondly, I've read enough of this stuff as a military correspondent because people would give me, give me classified documents. So this is real. There's, there's nothing fake here. This is, this is, he didn't entirely believe me. He had one, he had the foreign editor who'd been in government, a man named James Greenfield, read some of this stuff. And Jimmy said, yeah, it's for real, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, and then this tremendous battle occurred within the New York Times uh, with, between uh, Rosenthal and the other editors, and mainly the business side, and the, the, the main legal counsel for the paper, the outside counsel, was a famous big establishment New York lawyer named Louis Loeb, who told the publisher that if he published this material, 
he, the, he, the government would take him into court and he would lose against the restraining order. And Loeb would not defend him. He would refuse to defend him. It was such an arrogant, incredibly arrogant uh, uh, thing to tell a man uh, who's running the New York Times and whose editors are telling him, you've got to publish this material. This belongs in the public domain. We have a duty under the First Amendment to publish it. It doesn't matter what these people say. You've got to publish it. That's it. And the publisher, uh, uh, Arthur Sulzberger, also was called Punch, decided to go ahead. And, and then he fired the, uh, the chief counsel afterwards. He fired Louis Loeb. Fortunately, the staff counsel, who'd been whispering in my ear in that meeting, saying, don't worry, you telling them this. He was a young lawyer, and, uh, uh, and he'd been put in the firm as the staff counsel by Loeb. And he had disagreed with Loeb. He said, look, uh, you're wrong, Louis. We have a right to publish this under the First Amendment. And if we're taken into court, we'll win. And he turned out to be correct. But they didn't have a lawyer to, go to, to, to even to go to court the, the, when they got a telegram from Mitchell saying stop publishing and hand over the documents or meet me in court in the morning. Just to back up here a minute, what happened was on June 13th, the first article came out on the front page of the New York Times. The next day, June 14th, is what Neil Sheehan just mentioned. Attorney General John Mitchell threatened the Times if they didn't stop publishing. Well, they just kept right on. After story number three, Mitchell and President Richard Nixon got a federal court injunction barring the Times from printing anymore. That's right. It was the first time since the Revolutionary War that the government sought prior restraint. Lincoln shut down newspapers during the Civil War and arrested editors under military law. Uh, but there was no precedent for what was being done now in theoretically in peacetime. Good evening. Publication of parts of the 47-volume top-secret history of American involvement in Vietnam has triggered a major constitutional legal battle over government secrecy and freedom of the press. The, man most the New York Times appealed and went to court. It was one of the most high-profile journalism cases of all time. And fortunately, they pulled a very good judge who believed in the first amendment, who was very conservative. He was a Nixon appointee, and it was his first week on the bench, and it was his first case. His name was Gerfine, Judge Gerfine. And he'd been a very conservative lawyer. But he believed in the First Amendment. And uh, he was a good lawyer. And he said to the government, okay, now show me what's top secret sensitive in this. Well, he said it all. It's all, wait a minute. You've got 7,000 pages and a million words. Can't all be top secret sensitive. What is it that's going to compromise the national security? Because the government came in with a restraining order, with a, with, a, with a case saying that if we continued to publish, it would cause immediate and irreparable harm to the national security. He said, okay, now show me what's going to call harm. And they couldn't show him anything. Um, and this man had been in the officer strategic services during World War II. He'd been a colonel. So he wasn't an entire dummy. Judge Gerfine was, at first, unfriendly to the Times lawyers, according to Neil Sheehan, because he wasn't accustomed to what became known as political classification. Classifying things to keep them out of circulation. He thought if something was top secret, it really was top secret. But his eyes were opened. I mean, he opened his own eyes. 
and he wrote a resounding opinion in favor of the New York Times. But meanwhile, the Washington Post had gotten hold of its own copy of the Pentagon Papers from Daniel Ellsberg and began publishing. It's the story depicted in the 2017 movie The Post with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. When the government took the Washington Post to court, the result on appeal conflicted with the decision in the New York Times case, and that meant the case would go up to the Supreme Court. So the Times and the Post went to the Supreme Court, and they found in our favor. But yes, it was a, it was, it, it was a momentous adventure to, a thing to, to take part in. I can't, it was like going to war. I mean, the, the strain, the tensions on you were tremendous. First of all, we were in the Hilton Hotel working on this thing for two months before we published. And the strains in there were horrendous. We had a huge amount of material. You had to boil it down, decide what was the most important stuff. And you had to hand that out to, to four, four reporters, each of whom wrote three pieces, approximately. And, uh, and, and then you were up against the situation where as soon as the executive editor got the go from the publisher, he was going to go. <laughs> and, so, and then we got into this legal battle, uh, and, and, and you had all the tension of that. I remember the night, the day the Supreme Court decided in our favor. That night, I went down to the press room to see the presses roll. And they then were, the presses were in the New York Times building in, on West 43rd Street. And what a wonderful thing it was to see these giant presses start to roll and the paper come off that, you know, it was, it, it reaffirmed your, it reaffirmed your, your faith in America and in the freedoms we, we ought to enjoy. And, and your, your, your feeling, of the, your, it reaffirmed your faith in, 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 in the worth of American journalism, free journalism in a free country. I then began to realize I want to write a book about this, a definitive book on the war. I don't want to just end this with another magazine article or another newspaper story. I wanted it to encompass not just the American side, but also the Vietnamese, who they were, what had happened. I wanted it to be definitive. But I couldn't figure out how to write the book. I didn't want to write a reporter's memoir, because it's my belief that reporters in themselves are not that important. Uh, uh, that is not important enough to, to merit a book about them and their adventures. Their importance lies in what they witness and how they convey what they witness to the public as a whole. Because a reporter is a professional witness and not a participant, he's a witness, or she's a witness. And then John Van died, and he figured out how to approach the book he wanted to write. Colonel John Van, whom I'd gone with on my first helicopter operation in May of 1962 when he was the senior advisor in the northern Mekong Delta. I'd gone out with him on that first, first assault in 62. And I'd stayed friends with him through the years. Now, most of, John had other disciples besides me and other friends, but, and almost all of them turned against the war. John stayed with the war. It's the one thing we totally disagreed on by the end. But he stayed there in Vietnam. Most people went to Vietnam, they stayed one year, two years, at the most three years, perhaps, and then they came home. John stayed there for the better part of 10 years, 
from 62 until he was killed in 1972, in June of 72, except for one break. And so by the time he died, he'd become a personification of the American war in Vietnam. And I went to his funeral, because he was a friend, I went to his funeral at Arlington. By that time, John was still, he was a civilian, because he'd retired from the army in 60, 63, 63, 64, he retired. But he had been on detail to the army, and he, he, he was the equivalent of a general. He was the first, in fact, he was the first civilian, and so far the only civilian in our history, to hold military command in war. They assigned a deputy, a brigadier general to him as his deputy, so it would be legal because the deputy could also exercise court-martial authority, but John was, the gen he, was a, he was a corps commander. And he, um, he stopped the North Vietnamese offensive of 1972. The whole thing would have come down in 1972 if it hadn't been for John stopping them in the mountains. Uh, I mean, the country would have, disappeared, would, have started, would have disappeared then because it was falling apart. And he, he, he by sheer force of will, uh, held, held on to this, town in the mountains, which became a focal point. Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and, and the Vietnamese didn't go around it. They, they fought him there, and he defeated them. And when I went to the funeral, it was an extraordinary occasion, experience to walk into that chapel at Arlington, that red brick chapel, right outside the gate to the cemetery. It was like a class reunion. I mean, Westmoreland, they buried him as a general officer with the horse and the caisson and all the trappings. The chief pallbearer was William Westmoreland, who'd been the commander-in-chief in Vietnam. And William Colby, who'd been the CIA head uh, at one point, uh, was, was another pallbearer. And here are all these other, uh, Edward Lansdale, who put the ZM regime in power in 1950s for, for the Eisenhower regime, he was there. Richard Holbrook, who had been a young Foreign Service officer in Vietnam and went on to become the youngest Assistant Secretary of State for the Far East, he was, I mean, all these faces. I mean, saying, hi, I'd hi, <laughs> you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was extraordinary. I realized that only this man, Van, could bring all these people together because he was such a unique figure. So I decided if I write a book, a biography of John, I can reach out to the larger history of the war and to whom the Vietnamese are, et cetera, and I can bring them into the story. And that's what set me off writing the book. I wanted to write the book, but I came back on the funeral and I called my wife, who was also a writer, Susan. She wrote for The New Yorker. Uh, Susan won the first Pulitzer in the family, not me. And she called me from the Library of Congress where she was working, writing. And she said, uh, How's, how did the funeral go? And I explained, I was, I explained this extraordinary funeral to her. Uh, and she said, uh, she said, you know, maybe that's your book. And so I started to write, to, to, to write. It took me a long, long time. I had some problems. I had an auto accident. I lost a year over that. I lost a year over something else. But it basically took me, if you added it up, it took me 13 years of research and writing to get the book done. I was putting everything I had into it. I mean, everything I'd learned, all my skills that I'd built up over the years were going into that book. It was exhausting. I mean, and, and uh, I had terrible stomach cramps for a long period of time from nerves over the whole thing. Because your nerves get to you. You think, when is this going to be done? 
I mean, you see the end, but to get there, how, how, and you know how you, you, you know the path. And then you, what I should have learned was don't look at the top of the mountain. Just look at the step in front of you. It's hard to do that. <laughs> you keep seeing the top of the mountain. Jesus, mother of God, it's a long way away. <laughs> it took up all my middle years. I started it when, in 1972, and I published it in 1988. But I'm glad I did it. Because I wanted, I wanted to leave a book behind. I wanted to record th this experience. For those who'd been there, for those who'd fought there, for the general public at large and for the generations to come, and also, I guess, for myself. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to get it down and, and, and convey it, because it had been the, the experience of my life for 10 years. Neil Sheehan said that when he finished A Bright Shining Lie, he hoped it would be widely read, but he could never have imagined the powerful impact it would have beyond even winning the Pulitzer Prize. Given how much it had taken out of him, he didn't know whether he'd ever be able to write another book, but he did. He wrote two. One was called After the War Was Over, an account of Vietnam as he encountered it on a trip back in the summer of 1989. The other book was a Fiery Peace in a Cold War, an account of the U.S.-Soviet arms race through the story of Bernard Shriver, the Air Force officer behind the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile System. Neil Sheehan died of Parkinson's disease on January 7, 2021, at his home in Washington, D.C. As I promised earlier, here's the backstory of how Neil Sheehan got the Pentagon Papers from Daniel Ellsberg. It's a story he never revealed while he was alive, but he told it to a New York Times reporter in 2015 on the condition it not be published until after his death. Go read the whole version in the Times. It's incredible. But the bare-bones version is this. Ellsberg had secretly photocopied and carried the documents to his home, planning to leak them but he got nervous and only agreed to let Neil Sheehan read them inside his apartment. While Ellsberg was away, though, Sheehan ran his own little covert operation, sneaking them out of the apartment bit by bit to photocopy them, just as Ellsberg had done himself. I'll leave you with that. For now, I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes from the Academy of Achievement. What It Takes is made possible with generous funding from the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you as always for listening. <laughs> <laughs>